Welcome to another podcast. Now, today I have somebody who I've like fanboyed off of, and I think you guys are really going to love this interview today. Dr. Ryan Yamko, you're with us. How the hell are you, man? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I want to give you a, a little bit of my rendition of how I started to see you coming up these ranks very quickly. You've been around for a long time, but in my sort of in my bubble, how you got introduced into my bubble, it's pretty obvious that nutrition is like religion. There, there's no question. It's it's something that's driven by faith and belief systems. I mean, people will go to war over this. It's something that I don't think will be, be rectified uh, anytime soon. This is how I feel. This is the best way sort of to feed myself, my kids and my pets. And I will die before anybody tries to convince me otherwise. To sort of preface that and to set that up, if you were to think of, or if I was to think of the pet food space like Star Wars, you've got two divides in people's minds. You have the dark side of the force, and then you have like the light side. And the way that I saw this now, you know, I, I talk a lot, of course, uh, you know, about, you know, feeding whole life foods or foods with the most beneficial properties to them. And so I would look at something that would, let's say was highly processed, highly laden, artificial colors, whatever. I would look at that as the dark side. And when following your trajectory, here was somebody that in my world would have been like, working with like Darth Vader. Let's just, I'm not saying you're Darth Vader, but I'm just saying like working. It's, it's fair. Some days I'd look at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, literally, here's this giant force to be reckoned with. Here's this scientific mind. Here's this man that is, has so many credentials. Like I was reading your, your bio and it was like pages and pages and pages of credential work for the love of God. You're in this thing. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. many people in their life <laughs> can say they're a, in this thing? <laughs> Listen, I I use this man. This thing, I, I, it's like I've warped metal on my shelf trying to hold this. I got like extra support under the table to keep this up. You've got oh, like I'm not sure, like seventy plus like abstracts, studies, peer review studies. Like at some point, you left that side of the world, if we were just keeping this strictly philosophical dark side and the good side, and weaved over to another part of the world where you thought, I'm going to move over to the fresh side of the world because I think there's some potential here. Tell me a little bit about that. That was a very long intro, by the way, but tell me a little bit <laughs> about fair. that. A lot of expensive wallpaper, but yes, uh, yes I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, obviously, um, you know, when uh, people tend to tear me up on my blogs and stuff for Pet Food Industry Magazine, uh, even though I, I shoot straight on my talks, um, they always go back to my hills and blue days. So, hey, you know, FYI, there's my, uh, you know, uh, Darth Vader side that you're probably referring to. Um, and so once I left Blue, I started my own consultant company and then obviously started Guardian. And to your point, um, right or wrong, it's an emotional argument, not necessarily intellectual. So how do you marry the two where you can have that good science support that emotional uh, rationale that, that people have? And so, for example, um, a lot of veterinarians will bash gluten-free foods out there. Well, gluten-free foods aren't out there just necessarily for the dog. For example, we have a neighbor 
whose whose kids are sensitive to gluten and they react to the dog's saliva. So they have to feed a gluten-free dog food to the dog so their kids can actually interact with the dog. It has nothing to do with celiac being present in that mud. It has everything to do can can that person feed the dog and more and you know more importantly play fetch with that you know soggy tennis ball that comes back to you and so a lot of people focus on the pure science play instead of how do i make them a family member and how do i interact better with the pet i really want to talk about your articles holy man it was it took a while to put the lego pieces together to Dr. Ryan Yamkin, holy shit, this is the guy that actually wrote this article over here. I had no idea. There was an article that you put out that literally like broke, like it broke the internet from my space. Your dog is not a wolf. Pet food companies take note. Now, holy, <laughs> this article, like I know that you had, you had intentions when you were writing this, but I think, you know, like that painting where everybody looks at a painting differently. I felt like that everybody could kind of own up to this article. Like this article was talking about everybody. I think there was, that's what made this article so powerful. Tell me what the heck was going on here. So, you know, it's a, uh, you know, my joke is when you go into a store and they're talking about uh, your, your ancestors is, is a wolf and it's for a toy breed, you know, I don't see that chihuahua being, you know, a, a, you know, going out and taking down deer in the wild. Um, but it got to the point where, you know, a couple companies did really well um, with their marketing campaigns using that, that everybody was putting a wolf on the bag and there was really no rhyme or reason or rationale to it. And if you actually look at what would be biologically appropriate, um, even for a dog, if they had their preference um, and their studies out of it, right, it's a low starch diet. Well, many of those foods that are out there with the wolf that has on there that are quote unquote grain free, they actually have more carbohydrates in there than the grain counterparts. Um, and so it was literally the first of my series of um, calling BS on marketing claims is what it amounts to. Um, and, you know, where's the data to support it? Uh, and a great example, and it cracks me up today, is uh, the champion lawsuit that's going on now um, where you know, they hung their hat on the term biologically appropriate. And there was a recent article, I want to say back in August, September, where the lawyer argued that biologically appropriate was a quote unquote puffery claim. And it's like, no, it wasn't. That was your claim to fame. And that's what you told the consumer. So, well, which is it? Um, and so as I go through um, obviously, the other ones that you read, I, I go through what is a structure function claim versus a real claim versus that, you know, there is no uh, true benefit or, or claim tied to it. So for somebody to say meat rich or protein rich, that's a bullshit throwaway claim because there is no way to validate it or confirm that. If there's nobody that says, hey, you got to be 50 percent meat consumer, if you see that that terminology, you know, there's more meat in the product, you know, for example, just food for dogs claiming, you know, they're, they're healthier and you're not going to have all these problems you see with, with kibble food. And you know what, they ended up having listeria and their green beans. And it's like, dude, if you would have cooked them properly, you wouldn't have had the problem. Um, and by the way, you're not human grade in California because none of your kitchens are human grade. Otherwise, you'd have restaurant scores. And so I go after a lot of the false and misleading stuff and and where there's a lot of 
uh, murky water between claims on certain people's packaging that's confusing to the consumers, help them navigate, okay, what's a BS claim and what's a feel-good claim and what's a real claim. The wolf has become a symbol that, I mean, I when I went through Global last year and I went through SuperZoo, and, you know, you go to all these expos, there's wolves everywhere. And yep. you can see that market shift, that trend where people are like, you know, we demand more transparency. We would like to see these foods being a little bit more fresher. We, you know, we want to see a different technique in processing. The wolf seems to be that symbol that a lot of these companies are going to to say, we're doing all those things without having to say, we're doing all those things. Correct. Uh, when you put a wolf on there, you... Uh, a lot of people don't recognize um, that you're saying a lot more than just a wolf. You're making claims about your food that aren't necessarily true. I don't think there's that many pet parents out there that are saying, I want to feed my dog like I'm feeding a wolf. I don't know. I've never been ever with anybody that's a pet parent that said, I want to feed my, I'm sure there's a lot out there. I'm sure there are. But the majority of people that I've talked to, the educated people, nobody's saying, hey man, I want to feed my dog like he's a wolf. One of the most captivating terms, which is now I, I believe a symbol, and you highlighted that a second ago, was the fact that feeding grain-free pet foods, meaning if I was going into an aisle and I was pulling out something grain-free, I was feeding my dog A like a wolf, or I was feeding my dog more like a carnivore in a conversation with a couple of manufacturers, they were telling me that grain-free was the darling of the industry. Grain-free, you saw this massive explosion within the industry when people started to promote grain-free. How do you feel about that grain-free, non-grain-free? Like, what's going on, you think? Yeah, so for, from my standpoint, you know, it, it's, you know, carbohydrates, carbohydrate. You know, the the um, once it's all milled and it goes through the extruder, they're they're all the same. And so... What the industry does is they shoot for a certain amount of cook uh, for that starch. So think about, you know, when you take your box mashed potatoes, it's just dried mashed potatoes. And then when you cook, it's light and fluffy, right? You never see it in your stool. Um, and you never see your stool change as a human. Well, with pets, they have to do the same thing. So they shoot for a cook above 90%. Um, but what they do is they shoot for that regardless if it's a grain or grain-free diet. And when you shoot for that high a cook in the starch, they're all really created equal at that point unless something goofy is going on. Now, that's from a, a, a dry total tract standpoint. They all behave differently from a protein and, and fat standpoint. And so, for example, um, now what the hot trend is with the DCM is people going, well, I solved the problem. I put millet in there. Well, if you actually look at the studies that are out there that were actually out in 2010, um, millet's actually less digestible than corn. So, no, you're selling me a more expensive corn now, right? And actually, when you look at most uh, grains, Rice is actually the best one out there, um, at least most consistent, depending on what you're using. And then when you look at grain-free, you probably would be there, but you have to start worrying about other anti-nutritional factors. Um, and so there's things in there like phytate, which will bond uh, phosphorus and other minerals. Um, but also the problem you have is, and a lot of people don't recognize this, is you went from foods that were using quote-unquote whole grains that may have been lesser digestible but you switched for purified starches. And in those quote-unquote wolf diets, they're actually more processed because you're actually using a tapioca starch, a pea starch, 
uh, potato starch. And it's not uncommon to see all three plus their whole carbohydrate sources of peas, potatoes, and whatever else along with it. And when you end up getting those purified starches and you're looking for that high cook, like I just mentioned for digestibility, those free sugars will now start interacting with amino acids and render some of those um, undigestible to the dog. And if it doesn't get digested by the time it reaches the large intestine, it feeds bad bacteria. And so when I say bad bacteria, they typically love to ferment things that have amino acids in there. Um, and that's what gets you your funky odors. And so you got to be careful with that. And a lot of people that make those carbohydrate-free foods, I would challenge the consumer out there to say, okay, if it's better, tell me the digestibility of your grain-free and your grain food so I can make the decision as an educated consumer. And there's a lot of reasons why people don't have that information on their internet. It's A, they haven't done it, or B, it's not going to show you the data they want to show, or C, it's going to bastardize one of their other product lines. When you're looking at macronutrients and you're looking at source of energy to feed a pet, let's say, and you look on the back and you see protein and you see fat and you see your macros, that number one macro that's fueling your pet, why in your opinion... Ryan, is it not there? Like if I go back into labels, like I got, I got on this wall like really old <laughs> labels of food. This can is from like 1946. It says carbohydrates there on the bottom. And then like, I, I, I go to like a whole bunch of different foods and there's no carbohydrates listed on the bag. And I was told by somebody in the industry that the reason why they don't list carbohydrates on the bag was because as consumers started to look at that, there would, it would affect the way that they purchase foods. What you can do today so people can calculate it. And then this is the thing that most companies leave off is ash. Um, and ash is what happens is when, if, if you think about it, you're at home and you, and you make a, a cake and you're not paying attention and it literally turns to dust. Um, that is the non-organic matter that is left over. So that's typically your minerals, right? And so that ash content um, could be, uh, a, it's simply not available to the animal, but it could also be your, your minerals, right? Calcium, phosphorus, things of that nature. So not all ash is bad. Um, but most people don't report it because it starts bringing up another question to the consumer. Well, what's, what, what does ash mean? But if a consumer assumes that every kibble that's out there has 8% ash, which on average most foods do, they can do 100 minus moisture, minus protein, minus ash, minus fat, minus crude fiber, which those other four guys are typically there, and that'll get them their carbohydrate number. And then they can see for themselves, because everybody has a calculator on their phone, okay, well, what is the difference between Rachel Ray's and Blue Buffalo's grain-free? Because you know what? Just because they're up a percent or two on a GA for crude protein and maybe crude fat doesn't mean they're going to have less carbohydrate. And a lot of people uh, don't have that savviness or know that. Um, the other thing is, is AFCO, being that people were trying to push low carbohydrates, is actually implemented, and I believe it's in the 2020 guide. I know it was written up and, and it's been approved. Not sure if it made it yet that year. Uh, but they're actually making people analyze total starch and added sugars. So if somebody's going to say or imply their lower carbohydrate, well, then they have to not only put total starch uh, analyzed on there and a guarantee, but they also have to have the added sugars on there. You know, a lot of it comes down to really transparency in that company. And the ones that have been around for even the 100 years, 
you know, I challenge them to do that. I even challenge the up and comers that, you know, say, hey, look at me eat my, you know, bowl of fungus dog food. It's like, hey, where are your analyticals? Uh, where's your digestibility values? And, and you know, they'll, they'll stand behind the fact we're vegan, so we don't test with animals. But if you actually read what PETA says, they're fine with you doing a digestibility trial or a stool study on a dog if it's for dog food. They don't want you uh, doing harm on a dog for my food. Um, and so, you know, it's like it, they tend to use philosophies when it's convenient for them, or they'll tell you, sorry, that information's proprietary. And I usually call bullshit because for, you know, $4,000, $2,000, I can go figure out digestibility at a third party facility. And for 2000 I can get a complete AFCO panel on their food. Um, and, you know, that's what we did on some of the people that are out there. And, you know, we'll, you'll see some articles coming out where, you know, we end up calling people out on that, too. So why is it proprietary? I sent it to this lab and here's the numbers. When the consumer looks at the back of a bag, let's say, so if I just went out and I bought a bag of pedigree, awesome example, and I look on the back, there's an expiry date. The misconception for the consumer and the pet owner, and I talk to a lot of pet owners, is, hey, man, I can keep this food in my garage or in my closet for two years because the expiry on the back of it says I'm good for two years. Sure. I've then sat down with other manufacturers say, no, 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 no. That's how good it is if you don't open the bag. But once you've opened the bag, you've got a different ball game on your hands. The question that nobody's ever been able to answer, and there's, it's always been speculation. I remember talking to Steve Brown about this. I've talked to so many people about it. There's no data. I've searched the journals. There's no data as to how long pet food's good for. So when the pet owners open that bag, I know there's many factors of light, oxygen, what's going on in there, that chemical sort of reaction that's happening in that bag. What should people be thinking about the day that they've cracked the bag open? Well, the, the day they cracked the bag open, right, you should, a, you should be thinking, um, why did I buy the big bag or whatever bag you, you buy? And also what type of bag you, you do buy? Um, because some bags by design, um, whether manufacturers will, will tell you or not, They'll have perforations in them, uh, especially the plastic, the nice plastic bags, not so much the, the um, paper bag, which we refer to them in industry as hypercore because they're multi-layered and usually there's no openings in them. Um, and that that's, would be traditional to what you used to see back in the day, the you know paper bags where that first paper level rips, but there's another paper level underneath and there's usually kind of a plastic level inside. Um, so it's multi-leveled. Um, with the plastic, they usually put perfs in there because uh, if you go high altitudes and low altitudes, it'll brick up like you see, uh, you know, like coffee grounds and stuff like that. So when you see something that looks like when you buy coffee, it's vacuum sealed, you'll get that effect if you don't have perfs in there. So it allows that um, altitude difference going on in there. So you're still getting some air in there, whether you recognize it or, or not. But what most companies do is they'll test that product in that packaging in either accelerated testing for six months or they'll do ambient for two years or whatever they're targeting. Um, the accelerated is a quick and dirty way to get the market quicker and get your answers because usually if, if a product crashes, it's within the first month or so. Um, and that gets you a feel for, hey, did you stabilize the product properly? But when it comes down to um, how the consumer stores it, yeah, you can't mimic everything, and so nobody can come up with the right answer. But the quick answer is smell the product. 
Um, if it starts, if you're if you're feeding a product that has fish oil in it, um, what happens is, is over time, especially if it's a high level one or it's a fish first formula, it'll start getting like a paint thinner type aroma, almost like a chemical aroma. So if you open the bag the first day and it smells off from the normal times you fed it, I'd take it back um, because that's an indication that you have oxidation already going on. The dog might eat it, but usually there's a threshold that at some point he won't eat it because it just, you know, it's not no longer appealing. But if you can smell that chemical difference, um, that's usually when those omega-3s from fish oil are kicking in. Um, with flaxseed and other guys, and uh, you'll get you'll start getting more of a musty aroma. Um, and with the mega sixes, you'll it, you'll smell that difference too versus day day one. And so if it starts getting pungent, where you don't want to put your head in the bag or the bin anymore, yeah. it's it's done. And I'm not trying to call out shelter systems, but I've gone into shelters where they've they've taken a garbage bin because they got so many dogs and they got this garbage can. They literally rip bags open. They pour them in the garbage can. It's just open like this, no coverage, no nothing. And then every day they just sort of scoop and they put it in. When would be a point that Dr. Ryan Yamka would look at that and say, you know what, I'm not putting that in my dog's bowl. At uh, what so, day, what point? So A, is where, where's it being stored, right? So if it's being stored in your garage, the, the time limit is going to be cut down quite a bit, especially summertime. Wintertime, you probably don't care because it's, you know, it's being like it's stored in a fridge. Um, yes, it might get some air, but you know, everything is keeping cool with it. Um, you probably got minimal microbial growth or anything going on that August in Connecticut, in my garage, forget it. It's a ticking time bomb, right? You'd be lucky for a week. Um, but the other thing I would be worried about is, um, what are they doing with that bin? So do they ever get down to the bottom of the bin and feed that, or are they simply dumping the new food on top of the old food? Because that's where you're going to start having the problem. And if you think of it in the scenario of once you get one rotten apple, then all the others start to rotten, right? It's like you, you don't want that one rotten apple. And so if you have that hot spot, if you will, it's going to start contaminating all the others because you know as well as I do, most people don't just do a little scoop. They do deep scoops, and you might be taking some of that bad kibble with the good kibble. And so I always recommend that if you are one of those people, well, two things you should do is if you're dumping it into the bin, whenever you run the bin down and make sure you run the bin down, clean it and then put in a new food. But also if they're insistent on using the bin, they should always cut out the lock code and UPC, which are usually close together and scotch tape it to the bin. So if God forbid there's a recall, they know if there's a problem with their food. Because lots of times a product will get recalled, and what they did is they took the bag, they dumped it in the bin, and they threw the bag away. And you don't know if you had the contaminated food, and you might think something else is going on with your dog when in reality it could be salmonella, vitamin D, or, or whatever else. Yeah, and it seems very ABC-ish to say to somebody to clean the bin, but you would be baffled. Because people that buy the plastic bins, the consumer, the pet owner that goes out and buys it, I've had that conversation a million times. Hey, man, you ever wash that? They're like, why would I wash that? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, the unfortunate thing is, right, is laziness sets in sometimes and you just and we have busy lives and, and you know, it takes time to do it. And, um, you know, sometimes people choose convenience over food safety. And, uh, and why is it problematic in Europe? Just quick, just a quick rendition of it. If, if so, if somebody's using those pl and a lot of people, man, use those plastic bins, you go, they buy them. I know they'll put the fancy BPA free on them. But, you know, 
pouring in a bag and then another bag and then another bag, what just just the quick and dirty of it, what kind of problems are you experiencing there if you're not washing it ever? Yeah, so, uh, so think about this, right? Um, let's say now you got microbial contamination in, and you probably will because it's growing at, at room temperature, right? Because we, we do everything in the industry to keep it safe on a shelf in that bag, keep it sterile. Once you open it up, it's it's going to be whether you realize it or not there's mold spores and everything else flying around you every day right and you don't know if that scoop is clean or dirty and things of that nature and what happens is your animal might get sick you'll be quick to blame the food when in reality was it was the storage system you were actually putting the food into i would challenge i know that you know if greg aldridge is listening right now or um Who's the other wonderful lady that writes Tim Wall? And then there's uh, Debbie Donaldson. I'm sure they there could be a little bit of envy because I would I would challenge to say that your articles are probably the highest read hit commented articles. I did a I did a video, a viral awareness video with uh, Dr. Becker not too long ago, and it was pertaining to colors the colorful spectrum in food, that perception that you open the bag, you open a bag of Beneful. I think right now, Alpo is the number one selling brand of food in your country right now. I think it, it's, it's, it was rivaling in Canada, it's pedigree, whether it's Beneful, whatever the heck it is. Sure, yeah, There's it's usually, all the, usually one of those, yeah. Yeah, it's usually one of these guys. The other thing too that really kind of really freaked me out was there was a, a recent study or it was a study that was recently published or, or a statistic, I should say, not a study, that the average U.S. citizen is spending $20 a month on their dog. Like I, I, I can't even, and I get it, I get it. For those that don't have the money, there's no ridicule. But for those that do, 20 bucks a month, I mean, we don't have to talk about what they're probably buying. But we did this piece on these colors and, you know, some of the data and the research talking about how these these colors can be carcinogenic. In fact, they can be ticking time bombs. And then I get this message from Petco and one of their uh, one of their higher ups messaged me and said, hey, look, we saw your video. We thought it was awesome. We here, we're, we're removing all of these colors and any any of these products that have any of these dangerous colors or anything like that, we're taking it all off. What do you think? I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds super awesome. And then all of a sudden, you put out this monster, <laughs> and by monster, I mean awesome, this monster article with this, I mean, look at this, look at this chart that you also tagged into that. Who on earth would realize that these synthetic ingredients, what they meant and what, they, I mean, only you would. This is the, a superpower that you have. But you came out with this article calling out a spade a spade. For the record, uh, when, when the first one came out, um, everybody pretty much in a higher brass, but the CEO was on the phone wanting to know what I meant about it. And then uh, that's when you saw the big asterisk come out. And then... Um, You'll see on uh, iHeartDogs where they call it out better. And then also my LinkedIn article, um, you know, where I, I jokingly refer to it as premature celebration. Um, so when they first made the announcement, um, I want to say it was about a year prior to the first article that it came out. Um, you know, my, my partner and I, we were like, huh, that's interesting. And we immediately went to our uh, nearest Petco um, and we wanted to see, OK, well, what products are screwed in in this one and we immediately knew the low-hanging fruit the bagging strips and stuff like that and that's time beneficial and i think they changed 
how they do their coloring and a couple other Caesars. Uh, I think they pulled the coloring out or went natural. And so we wanted to see, okay, well, how much is this going to upset the cart, so to speak? And so, you know, we talked to one of the local employees and he was kind enough to show us his, their play card for Petco. And we were looking at it and coming from our backgrounds, well, we knew some of those other foods had synthetics in there that they were on the quote unquote keep list. And so waited a year to watch it play out. And obviously they did their big campaign of, hey, we're you know getting rid of all artificial ingredients. Um, and at that point, um, that's when I, I went to their website, saw what the list of the ingredients they called that was artificial. And then obviously it wasn't too hard uh, to know what else is artificial in there and went to their website, looked it up, went to the store, confirmed that they were still there and then wrote the first article. Uh, as you could imagine, uh, I got a quick response from their head veterinarian, um, Whitney Miller, and they wanted to talk to me and, you know, have follow-up discussions on how they can improve with, by the way, no follow-up discussions to date. Uh, but they, we did have one with a senior leadership. Uh, CEO was not there, but as you can imagine, head of marketing and everything else. And some of the conversations I had with them was, hey, you, do you realize that you're saying that every food in there has to be 100% natural? It can't be with added vitamins and minerals and, and amino acids. And obviously the phone call went very silent at that point. Um, and I gave the example, I said, one big artificial uh, preservative that's in just about every treat in your store is potassium sorbate. Um, so they quickly adjusted their website to an asterisk um, and one of them being potassium sorbate will be removed by February, 2020. I'll be in there February uh, or March 1st, 2020 to see what still has it because we know it'll stay there. Um, but, you know, they quickly uh, worded their website with the asterisk, which you'll see on their shirts. They don't put it on their window clings or on their commercials that were out, which was very short lived, um, assuming because of the two articles I wrote. Why are the colors in the food in the first place? For consumers. It's not for the dog. The dog doesn't give a shit. Um, so, you know, when people think uh, and you think about the shapes that they use, right, they'll make why does the dog dog doesn't care if it's in the shape of a chicken bone and it's an orange shape to look like roasted chicken. They don't care if that round piece is green and looks like a pea. That's all consumer perception. Uh, no different than a fruit loop looks pretty in cereal bowl. They're all delivering the same nutrition. Why does it matter? Uh, the funny thing is it's actually more complex for their manufacturing because they have to run them on separate lines and then blend them. Right. And so they're actually making it more complex for consumer perception um, has nothing to do with with dog preference. Um, some will tell you, yeah, it matters. It doesn't matter. Um, some will tell you, well, you know what? My uh, my dog doesn't like the green pea pieces. They're always at the bottom. It just happens to be that's the way it shakes out. And as they're eating the density, it falls through easier than the otter shapes. Um, it's just, you know, there's no science to do it. But obviously, you let the consumer believe what they want to believe because that's who you're really playing into. Right. And, and the reality of it is, is, um, you know, as well as I do, any dog out there loves to stick their head in a cat litter box and eat cat they covered in in bentonite clay right and 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 that's that's their appetizers before dinner um if i made it taste like or smell like cat when you opened the bag covered in clay you wouldn't buy it i wouldn't buy it you know so you, you got to play to 
the consumer. But the dog would love you. <laughs> so it's it's all for the consumer. Um, there's no and there's so when no you're holding there. those pieces and you've got like so when I when I like so if I put my bag in one of the grocery store brands and I pull out green, am I pulling out broccoli or is it safe to say that all those pieces are the same, just color differently? Color different, color different. So it's no different than uh, you know if you actually look at cat litter today. Um, where they give you like you'll see uh, and, and by the way a little tidbit for you um, the only difference between the brown clump in clay and the gray clump in clay is where their mind that's iron that gives it that color um, and then what happens is uh, you'll see like the blue speck or the green speck if you actually pick one of them up see if they're colored all the way usually they have just a, a top sprayer and then it falls into the, the gray and so they're not even like a blue clump it's literally or or spec. It's literally just top dress, and they do the same thing in laundry industry and stuff like that to give visual cues of, hey, there's a delivered benefit in there, even though all of that litter is delivering that scent, right? They just give you a visual cue. I did a I did a, a video that forced a public a public statement from Milkbone. Um, now I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to be a shit, yeah. but I did a video. The thing ended up at like a hundred million. I don't know what it ended up at. I did a video on those colors and some of these preservatives that were in food. And so the milk bone at that time, BHA, BHT, um, some of their ingredients have propylene glycol, titanium dioxide. dioxide. So, yep. yeah, so on and so forth. Now there is data, like for instance, here in Canada, um, BHA is actually it's it's a known it's classified as a known carcinogen. So after putting out that video to just to give people you know there's always that that conversation accumulation over time. So you know hey this is a small amount it's not a big deal I can show you a study that says it's not going to hurt you. But then there's been no data for like accumulation over time. Do you think that there's a, some sort of carcinogenic effect or do you think there's some sort of long-term issue over all of these consumptions of colors and your propylene glycols and your titanium oxides, mass consumption over 10, 12 years, however the dog or cat lives for? You know, the short question is, is I don't know. Um, but I can tell you that if you look at EU regulations, there's definitely an environmental impact. Um, so if you look at um, FETIOF, which for argument's sake is um, for the, your people listening, would be kind of the equivalent of what AFCO is. And so as a group of state regulatory and federal regulatory people come together, they kind of set the, the rules of the board game, if you will. Obviously, there's always people that break the rules, but the 99.9% .9 usually stay within, and the 0.1% usually gives the industry the, the, the bad rap um, because they're consistently doing it. But with Fedioff, um, they have certain restrictions on maximum levels of iron and zinc in dog foods. Has nothing absolutely to do with the health of the animal. Has everything to do with defecation of the animal and wow. the runoff into I, the systems I didn't and streams. Know that. Yeah, and, wow. so, and so you'll see, for example, um, if I was to use, let's say, uh, heme as a binding agent in a canned food. Since that's a natural source of iron, you have a little bit of leeway on that as far as going over the max. But if I'm adding iron oxide, which has no availability to the animal, you'll you'll be called out on it sooner or later once they analyze it. And they'll tell you, hey, sorry, it ain't coming into the EU anymore. 
Um, and that has everything to do with environmental. And that has nothing to do with the dog because literally in the case of iron oxide, it's not bioavailable at all. It's just there for color, so it's going out, right? And if you think about it, at a high enough dose, um, just like if you eat beets and you change the color of your stool, you eat something that's high enough in iron oxide, it's going to change the color of their stool. And uh, you know, and the reason you know I stay away from them is because they're there for color only, not for the benefit of the animal. And if you're using something that goes into the paint industry, it's usually used as tint to make that pretty yellow on the wall or white on the wall or red on the wall. You know, and you know it's literally there for color. Why would you put it in an animal just for color? At whatever percentage you're 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 doing it, um, you know, and and the sad thing is, is if that dog ever throws up on your rug, it's going to stain the floor. <laughs> so there's like no benefit to it. Ryan, I want to talk to you finally about this. Is the one that you wrote, and for those of you out there that haven't read this, I would highly recommend you go read this because you're able to see holes miles ahead of anybody else. You know the industry inside out. Talk to me here a little bit about what's going on because the media today is a frenzy. Um, no matter where I open up my newsfeed and Google searches, there's all of this input now that's coming in from uh, people like the Pet Nutrition Alliance. There's also Pet Foodology that comes out of Tufts. And all of these people now are saying, the attention is over here. You want to listen to what we're saying because it's it's critical. So, um, for, well, for starters, uh, same people. Um, so, you know, if you had to put an analogy, you can call one a pig and the other one with lipstick on a pig. It's still the pig. Um, so it's the same group that's trying to come out different ways to look like they're, quote, unquote, the perceived experts. Um, and so with the Pet Nutrition Alliance, uh, they had a rumbling, I want to say, about a year and a half, two years ago. A lot of um, middle size to larger size companies, and when I say that, they're not in the top five, so they're making a billion dollars. And if you're making less than a billion dollars, by their definition, apparently you're a boutique brand. And some of them are private, you don't even realize it. Um, for example, Diamond is is up there if they're not number six because of all the co-manufacturing they do, right? And so what they wanted to do was um, do something that I jokingly say was quarter ass to Wasava, which is the World Small Animal Veterinary Association. That organization was brought together by the big veterinary companies, food companies uh, at the time. And so what they did is they put together certain hurdles or benchmarks for veterinarians to understand what's a good food. And they did it in a time when there wasn't very many pet food companies. Um, and so what they would do is, hey, you know, did you have board certified nutritionists formulate the food? Uh, did you do AFCO feeding studies? Uh, can you provide for me uh, a complete AFCO nutrient profile on one food? And the, and the applied thing was if you could do it on one, you could do it on all. Well, the Pet Nutrition Alliance tried to do their version of it. And why I say it's quarter assed is because it, it literally was. Um, it was based out of Tufts by Lisa Freeman and uh, the group that she started. Uh, which, by the way, if you go back and you look at lineage, which you can't see it now, but if you go back to when it was started in old AVMA archives and stuff, uh, it was started by Imes, I believe, at the time, um, Perina and Hills. Uh, and a lot of people that sit on the quote-unquote director's board are still getting paid, whether they have 
endowed chairs, research funding, uh, dog food programs or buildings or nutrition centers built by them by those guys as well. And when they went out and sent out the questionnaire, the questionnaire was, um, do you have a, a board certified vet nutritionist or PhD nutritionist, animal nutritionist, which would be me um, because I'm not a veterinary nutritionist, but by the way, I am a board certified animal nutritionist with the American College of Animal Sciences and also a board certified fellow nutritionist with the American College of Nutrition, which is human, um, just to put it in, in stature, which comparative nutrition is better than single nutrition and most vets will tell you that. Um, and then they asked, you know, basic questions that would set up the good guys to win. Um, and then they would say with one food, you know, tell me what your nutrient level is that. And obviously in, in the article, I poked fun out of it because it was shortly after the, the big vitamin D recall with Hills Pet Nutrition. And I said, you know, well, maybe they should have asked about the vitamin D levels in one of their wet foods because what they asked and that and even though that seemingly a joke and unfortunately animals uh, died from that and harmed, and I believe there's still class action going on with it. The reality of it is, is they didn't ask the right question. They picked one nutrient, which they could pick, and it was irrelevant to what they were doing. So what was the value of that? And how are you providing uh, information to the vet that you're the authority when you you wouldn't even have picked up the vitamin D recall on one of the guys that is funding you the most? Uh, the reality of it is, um, in today's marketplace, um, there's so many foods and animals are doing so well that, you know, veterinarians typically don't recommend foods anymore unless, uh, your animal's doing poorly or is sick. Um, and so something like, uh, the DCM scare, if you will, is a good way to pull that recommendation back to the vet where it's been lost. Um, and in fact, a recent report by Cascadia and it was covered in pet food industry magazine has actually showed regardless of the DCM scare. Um, which is literally a scare. There's nothing behind it. Um, you know, they're, that the veterinarian is still losing their voice with the consumer. And I would suspect they're losing it more because there was no data to support that scare to begin with. And now there's a certain level of distrust. Um, and to put it in perspective, um, I've actually been asked to go to Wisconsin in December trying to work on, on uh, the logistics for it. But they want me to come out there and teach as a continuing education course, how can vets be perceived as not being food sellers or tied to big companies? Um, and, you know, the one thing to point out and a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you heard the scare. You saw FDA come out and say there is no data to support it, which shows you that the people involved with the PNA are not your experts because they're the ones that kind of kicked off the scare. But once they got funding from Purina and AKC, I haven't heard a peep from them. So were they doing it just to get funding for their, their research program or were they doing it, you know, for the, the health of the animals? Uh, it makes you ponder it. One of the things you just mentioned was, which is awesome, that Wisconsin is, is inviting you out there for that perception. How deep is that, Ryan? How deep is... You had a post, I, I saw it on, on your LinkedIn, where you had like these stats where you were showing the influence at a very, very early stage for a veterinarian as they're slowly making their way up the realms. Um, 
that you know if, if you're uh, if you're a young vet student, you can go in, you can start getting like free foods. I think I believe there was like fifty percent off programs. Do you feel that this is that this could in fact, or 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 how much in your heart do you feel that this is swaying that veterinarian? So they may not see it at this point, but when they kind of come out of school and they start practicing, how deep is that persuasion? Do you think? Yeah, so that's part part of the discussion. So my invited talk for the NABC is to actually discuss that is how does unknown bias or, uh, throughout your learning career end up impacting potentially your ethics uh, unknowingly, right? I don't think they're necessarily going out and mischievously saying, hey, don't buy the other food, buy this guy. And, and you know, and they're putting money in the pockets like the opioid crisis. Uh, there's nothing like that going on. But, um, you know, how does day one feeding of, you know, in the case of Purina, giving away the, the food for free to students, you know, how much does that impact them throughout their career? Because, hey, I'm a vet student. I, I can't work a job outside because it's taken up all my time. Um, I have to see racking up tuition bills. In my case, with all my school, it's like 150000 with all the graduate school and everything. So they've got all that going on. The fact that somebody says, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you this veterinary food for free to, to Fido. And all you got to do is come in once a week or every two weeks and pick it up in a hallway which is what they did when I worked at Virginia Tech Animal Hospital while I was an undergrad. And you would go in certain days of the week and you would see Hills or, or Purina or RC and you'd see people's names stuck onto the bag or the, the cans of food. And in the case of Hills and RC, I forget, I think they charge 50%, but you know, when you're charging $120 or whatever it is for a bag of JD and you can get it for 60 bucks, which is a normal bag of food at that size, you know, that, that's, that's a big deal. Um, and now, you know, inadvertently you start thinking, Hey, they care for me or they care for my dog better, or, Hey, you know, or simply feedings believing. Right. And then you surround yourself by in the caves of Tufts, um, and also other schools, they have a Perina nutrition feeding center. Well, if all I can feed the animals in my, in my kennels under my, uh, under my watch is Perina, well, you constantly have it in your face, and now it's all of a sudden becomes part of your life, whether you realize it or not. And they're hoping that investment carries over to when you go into the vet world and you start converting consumers, whether it's for the veterinary food or it's for their you know product line out in the marketplace. And, and Ryan, does it become problematic when you see, for instance, as an example, the manufacturer like Mars, when you can own the clinics you can own the food and then you also can own the labs oh yeah does uh, that you, become you, you couldn't be more vertically integrated uh unless they went and bought alonco or bayer and had the drug business as well um a lot of people don't realize that mars is no longer a candy company they are a pet company um that officially happened a few years back and i forget if it was, they were buying uh blue pearl or one of them but when they made that acquisition, they had to sell like six random clinics out so they wouldn't be a quote unquote monopoly. In the wake of DCM, now this is this has been something that sort of, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier where this was something that sort of exploded and then now it seems to be fizzling and fading out. You don't see people talking about it very much. Um, it's definitely come out of the trends. Do you think that this is kind of starting to fade away because of uh, you had mentioned before that you know in the, in the crisis of this scare there's really not very much information out there but 
do you have any sort of like ethical advice for those people, for those pet parents, for the veterinarians, for manufacturers that are listening? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, especially with the, 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 the veterinarians, um, you know, they should never take anybody's word for it. If I came in off the street or if I wrote a paper, they're going to be critical of me, right? Um, they're going to look for flaws or, hey, well, what about this? What about that? They should do the same thing with their colleagues. And so, for example, when Dr. Freeman wrote her paper in December of last year, um, saying, uh, hey, I believe it's bag diets. Um, if you actually look at the paper and what she wrote in there, two of them that she references to her quote-unquote link or cause and effect, where in reality it's an association at best, um, she cited unpublished data and her blog, which had nothing but unpublished data. And I don't know on what planet you can cite your own blog, at least, you know, for me to cite my own blog uh, and, you know, having 70 peer-reviewed abstracts and articles and all that, if I tried to cite my own blog, it'd be rejected. Um, and so what a lot of people don't realize is that article, it, it's a commentary. There's no science peer-reviewed process in there. That's her opinion. It's no different than an op-ed if you or I wrote it. Unfortunately, people took it for what it was, and they took it as if it was scientific peer-reviewed, and, and it's not. In fact, I talked to the president of AVMA, and that's exactly what I was told. And I was also told if I want to write something, I can. But obviously, I'm not going to because there's no reason to because her data and her suggestions never played out. The FDA came back out. They gave you a list of, hey, look at the foods that are there, by the way. For if chicken's an exotic protein, let me know. I eat it every day. Maybe I should be paying a premium for it. But that was the number one protein source. Uh, fish was up there, too. Uh, again, uh, maybe I should be paying a premium for that. Um, and, you know, and by the way, it wasn't boutique foods because most of them are your top sellers and they might be boutique by name, but they're not by the company that owns them. And then people want to beat up kangaroo. And, you know, the two companies tied to kangaroo were Zignature and California Natural. By the way, Mars Pet Care owns California Natural for those people who aren't aware of it. And by the way, they also said middle of last year they were going to discontinue the brand because they couldn't keep up uh, the pricing where the performance was or where it needed to be. So why is it still in the marketplace and why is it being called out? And then if you further look at the data, too, a lot of the cases that were sent in were false DCM cases. So people weren't diagnosing them properly and they were assuming, hey, heart issue, grain free, submitted to FDA. And if you look at the data, the reality of it is, is what, 90 plus percent were actually dry foods. Now there's, you know, as well as I do, most of the raw foods, freeze dry foods, air dry foods, and all those guys out there are grain free, right? There's no problems with there. They weren't registered. And by the way, all boutique brands. Um, and, and so, and the other side of it is, is the way that the FDA requested the data, they put, hey, we're looking into grain free and these guys, they still got 10% of the cases that came in as grain. Now, if they would have said, please report all DCM cases, they probably would have a better data pool. So inadvertently, it was biased coming in. There wasn't even trends within the brands that they unfortunately listed in that graph. Uh, if, you know, a can of being number one, uh, if I thought there was a problem, you'd expect to open that up, that PDF, and see nothing but pork and squash. You don't. It's, it's sporadic across everything, which tells you it's not a dietary thing. Uh, is it genetic? Is it 
um, environment? Is it, hey, you know what, the food's formulated properly, but they're not eating enough of it. Uh, that's enough to cause the issue. And then lastly, uh, when they had DCM cases and non-DCM cases, they all had low, middle, and high taurine. And I can ask the best vets out there, including Dr. Freeman herself, and if I ask her, what taurine should I be pulling? Should I be pulling it after eating, fasting? Should it be whole blood? Should it be serum? Should it be plasma? And none of them can answer that question. And that's why you see in that FDA data, they reported all as such. So if you don't know how to analyze it properly and consistently, how can you draw a conclusion? Now, I'm not a vet or a cardiologist, but I am somebody in the field that does the work. And, you know, the old adage goes, those that can do, those that can't teach. Um, that's why I make the foods. That's why I formulate the foods. That's why I know how the processes interact with the foods. Those people that are out there making claims tied to other foods, they're only testing foods that are ready to market in, in chosen cases that those companies that are funding are allowing them to do. Uh, if you think they're being a third-party researcher, they're not. I mean, don't don't get that wrong. They're paying whatever they're paying to fund that student, to fund the program, to fund the clients to be on the food. And then usually there's a 50 to 70% overhead that goes to the school just for their cut. And think of it, you know, as the cut for the schools, the, the mafioso guy saying you got to kick up. Um, that's, that's the equivalent of what they're doing. If you were the typical pet parent, what is that one piece of advice that you would give me as I'm so freaked out right now? I don't know what the heck to do. Yeah. So it, it, it's a good question. So, um, a lot of my friends have asked the question. So the first thing, especially, uh, uh, I'll, I'll put it in perspective. Um, back in my days when I was at University of Kentucky grad school, my wife was a neonatal intensive care unit nurse, and a lot of their husbands were police officers. Uh, some of them are canine cops today, um, and they, they're very specific about what they feed. Usually it's raw, it's grain-free or whatever, and they don't change it because their dogs are stressed in chases and they don't want any GI upset, especially when they're in the car with you all day. Um, but those were a lot of the first people to call because they have breeds that are predisposed to those types of diseases, right? And as you would expect, as soon as they went to the vet, the vet didn't ask them, how's your day, how's whatever. It was, what are you feeding your dog? And as soon as they said grain-free, they're like, well, you got to change it. And so immediately, to their credit, they reached out to me and they said, well, they're telling me I need to change it because heart disease. I said, so what tests did they run? Did they run any tests? Did they pull taurine and said it was low? Did they start going through? And again, not a cardiologist, but I can walk you through all the steps on what they need to do. I can't read the ultrasound, but if they ain't doing an ultrasound, you don't have DCM confirmed. And that's what a lot of people forget. And you could have heart issues for other reasons. Um, but, you know, for example, celiac disease or GI disease could cause a carnitine deficiency, which results in DCM, which isn't tied to taurine. But in their case, I said, well, what were the signs? And he goes, well, there were no signs. I said, he didn't even do a baseline to see where you were. And he goes, no. I said, well, A, you go back and challenge him, or B, you find another vet because he isn't doing his due diligence. I said, he should have been walking you through the process of how do I look at and is there a problem? And I said, and if you're truly concerned, I said, call up your company and ask them, hey, what's the digestibility of your food? Do you analyze taurine? Do you analyze sulfur amino acids? And go back with that information armed. And I said, and, and if they can't answer digestibility question, you probably shouldn't be feeding their food anyway, because that means they haven't done their bare minimum, at least in my mind. And so you don't have to run 
multi-million dollar studies or pay veterinarians multi-million dollars to get in their doors because small companies can't afford it. They can't afford the commercials. Why are they going to afford buying off veterinarians and being in their face for big trade shows and stuff like that? They're just not going to do it. But doesn't mean they're not doing their due diligence by analyzing finished good, going out the door to make sure it's consistent and doing the digestibility results. And, and if you ask them what digestibility is and, and the analyticals, they say it's proprietary. The consumer should call horseshit on it because, uh, like I said, we, I could send it out to any lab in the U.S. and you can analyze it. Um, even if you want to pick out the basic things, they'll analyze it for you. And if I went to a third-party testing facility, for a few grand, they'll run a digestibility test. So A, they either don't have it, B, they don't like the, what the numbers are, or C, it's probably bastardizing their other products in their portfolio. Dr. Ryan Yamka, thank you for such an incredible podcast. Where can people find these rock star articles if they're not if they're not if they're not showing up in their newsfeed yeah so um you go into pet food industry magazine uh you go right to their website you click on the top left uh you'll see a drop down menu look for blogs and columns and if you go to debunking myths and misconceptions you'll be able to open up any article that i have there for free every point that i make there's either going to be an image, a link, or literature cited to all the articles and stuff. Finally, if people want to check out your pet food company, where's a, where's a great place to find it? Yeah, guardianpetfood.com. Uh, you can see us on Facebook as well. Um, we're going to be working with uh, Michelle Akers, the famous uh, female soccer player, and helping support her uh, farm sanctuary down in Georgia. Doctor, let me get it. Let me get it right here, Doctor Ryan Yamka. Thanks so much for jumping in for podcast number five. I hope we get to bring you a thousand times over for some more important topics. I took up your entire day, man. You are a rock star for doing hey, no this. No problem. Way. Thank you for helping me. Hopefully, inspire a lot of pet parents. Yeah, just learn to ask questions and don't be afraid to ask them. And it doesn't matter if the company's big or small; they owe it to you to answer them. You heard it from the bad boy of the industry, Dr. Ryan Yamka. There you go, brother. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs>